So tonight we're going to look at Revelation chapter 11, just the first two verses. And if we spend the entirety of our time together on two verses, then that tells you we have quite a lot of material to cover. We've been walking through at a a rather brisk clip over the last several weeks, a chapter at a time for the most part, but we slow down now as we get into these more lengthy and significant passages, particularly here because there is an image that we have to take time to understand. We want to be very careful in our thinking. One of the things I want to remind us of at the outset of this is that, one, all of our understanding of the apocalyptic language of the Revelation is bound up in the original meaning. One of the things that we should understand as we become better students of God's Word is that the Scriptures, while they may have varied application, they only have a singular meaning. And what we're attempting to do in the power of the Holy Spirit, with good, careful reading of Scripture, is to get to the heart of that original meaning because only when we rightly interpret Scripture can we rightly apply it. In addition to understanding that we are trying to get to what John actually means in these verses, we also are attempting humbly to understand the symbolism that John gives to us. One of the questions that people will ask most often, particularly about the Revelation, is, is it literal? Right? You may have asked that question. Are these things literal? And the answer is yes, they are literal, but they are literal in the sense that they were intended. And what John intends by writing in this very figurative language of the apocalyptic genre is to give us symbols that depict real things, but they are symbols nonetheless. They symbolize something that's real and true and something that will come to pass, and yet they are symbols. And so oftentimes John tells us what the symbols mean. And when John tells us what a symbol means, we should, we should take John at his word and we should allow that standing to, or that symbolism to stand until we have cause to understand it a different way, until we have a, a justifiable reason to see it some other way. And finally, we also want to ensure that as we seek to get to this original meaning, to interpret this the right way, that John like every other part of Scripture, is not only interpreted by his own writing, what's within the Revelation itself, but also by the entirety of Scripture. The whole canon of Scripture is a lens through which we understand more of what John has to say. And so as we think about those sort of foundational things, we're going to walk through these two verses and try to understand them. What does John really mean? Not how is it applied, but what does it really mean? It'll challenge us, I think, but in a good way. So I want us to read together these two verses, and then we'll dive in. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
I have to tell you that as we think about these verses, there are a number of ways to interpret these two verses, even within your chosen pathway or approach to interpreting these verses. Some of you will come at this from a dispensational view, and you'll have a very particular understanding of how these verses are to be understood. And others will come at this from uh, a classical premillennial view, where the view I've been teaching from. And even within that, there are multiple ways to understand these things. We have to be humble. We have to be willing to say, Lord, would you give us understanding? Would you help us to mine this for his truth? And then as we come to an understanding, we have to be humble enough to say, God has meant something by this, and we, with finite minds and fallible hearts, are trying our best to understand it, and so we do it humbly. You know that one of the theologians I've been relying upon is George Eldon Ladd, who was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm going to divert from George Ladd here, as I do at various points, um, because I take a different opinion than he does. I'm not sold on everything that he says. I'm not sold on anything that any one particular theologian says. I'm trying just like you to understand this best. But I do want to read a lengthy section from George Ladd's commentary because he gives a good overview of the various ways that these verses and the symbolism of the temple can be interpreted. So let me read this first and then we'll begin to think through it. George Eldon Ladd writes, There are four plausible interpretations of this chapter. Many commentators understand it to be a piece of earlier Jewish apocalyptic written before A.D. 70, while the temple, that would be the second temple, was still standing and thus to be taken literally and historically in its intent. So that'd be view number one. Number two, Ladd says, Dispensationalists interpret the main features in the passage with stark literalism and see a prophecy of the restoration of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem at the end of the age and of the struggle between the restored Jews and the Antichrist or the beast. That's number two. Number three, a third interpretation sees here a prophecy of the church church, and its fate in a hostile world. And then the fourth, Lad says, a fourth interpretation sees here a prophecy of the preservation and ultimate salvation of the Jewish people. So one interpretation is that this refers to the second temple that was destroyed in the year AD 70. Second, one of the interpretations is to say this is a literal third or millennial temple that will be built at the end of time. Third is to say that this is the church, the people of God. And fourth, this is to say, this is the Jewish remnant that will be grafted in to God's family at the end of days. And Lad explains why these views may or may not be accurate. He would tell you that the first view, that this is a reference to the historic second temple, the Herodian temple that was around in Jesus' day, that this is not accurate because John is writing 60 years after the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Um, And so the temple has already been destroyed. And so these things John sees as taking place in the future, not as something that has already passed. Ladd would also differ from the dispensational view that this is an actual physical temple that will be built at the end of time, a third temple, a millennial temple, because he would tell you that there are 
symbol, there's symbolism in the chapter that even the dispensational theologians can't explain literally. And so if that symbolism calls into question a literal interpretation at each point in the passage, then it could call into question a literal interpretation here of the temple. And then there's a choice to be made between understanding this as the people of God, the church, or the people of God, a Jewish remnant saved at the end of time. And Ladd argues for the latter. He would say that this is actually a Jewish remnant that is grafted back in to the family of God at the end of time. And he rests uh, solidly upon his interpretation of Romans 9, 10, and 11. I don't counter with him there that there will be a grafting back in of a Jewish remnant at the end of days. I think that's accurate. I think to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11 accurately, we would say that God is going to take the original part of his, of his plant, his family, uh, the olive shoot, and he's going to take that which was broken off to make room for the Gentiles, and he's going to attach it back to the plant and cause it to live. There will be a grafting back in at the end of days. But I differ with Ladd in that I take this symbolism to refer to the church, the whole people of God. So I want to show you why, and then I want to show you what that means. Recall that all of chapter 10 and the bulk of chapter 11 are an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. The sixth trumpet, or the second woe, took us to the end of human history and the outpouring of judgment on the earth such that one-third of the global population was killed. Now, before the blasting of the seventh trumpet that we'll see in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, there is a pause. This is akin to the pause between the sixth and seventh seal judgments that occurred in chapter 7. Remember that there John heard the number of the sealed tribes of Israel, chapter 7 and verse 4, and he saw the unnumbered multitudes of the nations, chapter 7, verse 9. This two-part experience answered the question asked at the end of chapter 6 among the nations who were seeking cover on the day of the wrath of the Lamb when they asked in chapter 6 and verse 17, who can stand or endure? Indeed, those who can stand are those who are numbered among the unnumbered people of God. In this way, the interlude of chapter 7 was a means of comfort to John and to his readers and to us in our day, a way of reassuring God's people in the face of looming judgment upon the world that God cares for us and will indeed hold us fast. It follows then that the purpose of this second interlude would be similar to the first. That this interlude in chapters 10 and 11 is meant to bring comfort to God's people. To remind us that we are known by God and kept by God even as the time grows short. The nations rage against God's people and God increasingly pours out wrath upon the nations. This effort to comfort God's people gives us pause as we consider what is meant by the measuring of the temple of God. I want to be really clear here. I am not denying that there may be a third temple built at the end of days. I acknowledge that even in our own day, there are many Jewish organizations and not an insignificant amount of Christian support for those 
working even now to make preparations for the temple. They are manufacturing temple vessels and sewing priestly garments and training priests and Levites in liturgical practices, and they're constructing models of temple furnishings. It may very well be that before the last day, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, before Jesus comes a final time, it may very well be that on the Temple Mount there is established a third real, literal, physical temple where Jewish worship occurs. All that aside, I do not believe that's what's being talked about in Revelation 11 verses 1 and 2. Instead, I understand these verses to be speaking of a symbolic temple, something that represents the whole people of God. In order to demonstrate the legitimacy of such symbolism, it's helpful for us to consider how temple imagery is used throughout the New Testament. We may regard references in the Gospels and the book of Acts almost always referring to the Herodian or second temple in Jerusalem. And so with that assumption, let's consider references to the temple, first in the remainder of the New Testament and then in the Revelation itself. When we look at the New Testament outside of the book of Revelation, the Gospels, and the book of Acts, the temple imagery is only used in the Pauline epistles. It's not used in the universal epistles. And Paul only uses temple imagery in both of his letters to the Corinthians, Ephesians, and 2 Thessalonians. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, the word temple is used in three ways. First, it refers to the temple system as outlined in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 13, Paul reminds the church of the way that those who served in the temple were fed through the sacrificial offerings as a way of legitimizing the provision of those who preached the gospel from the gospel ministry itself. Second, the temple imagery can refer to idolatrous places of worship. This is the case in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10, where Paul warns against becoming a stumbling block to weaker Christians by eating food that has been offered at an idol's temple. Finally, the use of temple imagery in 1 Corinthians is with reference to God's people, either individually or collectively. In 1 Corinthians 3, in verse, verses 16 and 17, the church is referred to as God's temple in which God's spirit dwells. The imagery used to show why it is so grievous to God for someone to cause unnecessary division among God's people. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 19, the fact that individual believers are both physically and spiritually the temple of the Holy Spirit serves as a basis for abstaining from sexual immorality. In his final, some would say second, letter to the Corinthian church, I say that because it's possible that Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians, two of them that are a part of the scriptures. Paul uses the imagery of the temple to describe the people of God. Believers are the temple of the living God in chapter uh, 6 of 2 Corinthians. And just as the temple of God has nothing to do with idols, so the people of God, his temple, should not be unequally yoked, aligned in marriage with idolaters. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul again draws on the symbolism of the temple to talk about the people of God. 
writing about those who were near, the Jews, and those who were far off, the Gentiles. Paul says that they have all been reconciled to God and to one another through Jesus Christ. And in that work of reconciliation, they have been made members, Paul says, of one household, and he calls that household the holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21. The final usage of temple imagery among the Pauline epistles is in the second letter to the Thessalonians. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul makes clear that those who have afflicted the people of God will one day be afflicted by God, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 6. The Thessalonian believers are not to despair, thinking that their suffering will never be relieved, but should rest in the fact that their relief will be at the appearing of the Lord Jesus, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7. As a means of helping them understand the times and not be shaken in mind or alarmed, Paul wants him to understand that when the final appearing of the Lord Jesus occurs and the gathering of his saints to him, it will happen after the appearing of the man of lawlessness. Paul's already taught them this, he says, in, in, in his presence, when he was there in Thessalonica ministering to them. And yet they've forgotten or become confused. And so he reminds them about the coming of the man of lawlessness, who he also calls the son of perdition. This future godless, sinful man whose coming is by activity of Satan, Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 2, will set himself up in, quote, the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 4. As with so many other parts of Scripture, there are varied ways to interpret this. But I think a plain reading of the text asserts that this is a physical building. It's a real, true place on the earth. And so it may very well be that what Paul is referring to in 2 Thessalonians 2 is an end-time, third millennial temple in which the man of lawlessness will establish his presence and power and after which will come the final dreadful day of the Lord. We must consider the use of temple imagery in the Revelation itself. Outside of what we see in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, there are eight usage, uses of temple imagery in the Revelation. All of them refer either to a heavenly, spiritual place where God dwells now, or the end-time reality of God as the temple itself. In his address to the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3 and verse 12, the Lord Jesus states that the one who holds fast under trial will be made a pillar in the temple of my God. Clearly, this is symbolic because a person would not literally become a pillar. So the temple is not an earthly, physical temple in chapter 3, but a heavenly, spiritual dwelling place where the persevering people of God find a fixed, permanent home in God's presence. The vision of the unnumbered multitudes in chapter 7 includes a description of those who come out of the great tribulation whose robes are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. John says in verse 15 of chapter 7 that they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
Here, the image of the temple seems best to describe not a physical temple, an earthly temporal a temple, but instead a heavenly temple, the presence of God, where God dwells. For in the second half of the verse, John describes the one who sits on the throne, God, as sheltering them. And you may remember from our study of chapter 7 that this idea of God's sheltering presence is literally his tabernacling with his people. It is his dwelling with his people, knowing them as his own and them knowing him as their God. It's the same imagery that we will read in chapter 21 and chapter 22. In chapter 11 and verse 19, after the blowing of the seventh trumpet and the declaration of the enduring reign of the Lord and his Christ, John says that the heavenly temple was opened and the ark of his covenant within his temple was seen. So again, this is not an earthly temple, either past or future. It's a heavenly one. The dwelling place of God where he's worshipped and adored and praised by saints and angels. And it is also from which he dispatches angels to do his bidding. For that's what we see in chapter 14. In chapter 14, verses 15 and 17, there are references to the temple. Both of which refer to the dwelling place of God in heaven and not to an earthly physical temple. It is from this heavenly temple that in 14 and verse 15, an angel comes forth calling for the harvest of the earth. And in chapter 14 and verse 17, that angel comes with a sharp sickle to harvest grapes. But these are not just any grapes. They are the wicked themselves, for they are thrown into the winepress of God and they are trodden out beneath his feet. Many of you will remember the battle hymn of the Republic and the line in that hymn text that he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. It comes right out of chapter 14 and verse 17. John tells us in chapter 16 about the seven bowl judgments. You remember that there are three sets of judgments in the Revelation. One set are the seal judgments, chapter 6. One set are the trumpet judgments, which we're walking through now. And then there will be a third set of judgments of the bowls. The seal judgments affect a quarter of the earth. The trumpet judgments, a third of the earth. And then the bowl judgments will affect the entirety of the earth. They are poured out in full measure. When John sees the description of these bowls being poured out, bowls full of the wrath of God upon the earth, he hears them poured out at the bidding, the command, the instruction of God himself, which he describes as a loud voice in chapter 16 and verse 1, a loud voice that he hears coming from the temple. And similarly, in chapter 16 and verse 17, that loud voice is heard again, this time responding to the outpouring of the seventh bowl with the words, it is done. There's one more use of temple imagery in Revelation. It's in chapter 21 in verse 22, where John writes about the vision of the new Jerusalem, declaring that there was no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. So here the temple is not an earthly temple. And it's not even a heavenly temple. 
It's not the church as a temple. The temple is God himself. Much like the light, which is God himself in that eternal city, for there is no need of lamp or sun, so the dwelling place of God is God himself. There is no need for a building or a structure anymore. So the New Testament sustains six uses of temple imagery. One, the Herodian or second temple. Two, pagan temples, temples to idols. Three, the heavenly temple where God dwells even now, is enthroned, worshipped by saints and angels, and from which God dispatches commands. Four, the temple can be seen as God himself in the New Jerusalem. Five, the temple can be the people of God, either individually or collectively. And then six, the temple can be where the man of lawlessness will set himself up, proclaiming himself as God. Revelation 11, 1-2 clearly doesn't refer to the Herodian or second temple. It's not a reference to an idolic or pagan temple. It's not a reference to God himself or to the heavenly temple where God dwells now. So that leaves only two options. Either this is a reference to the people of God, as is the case in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 2, or it is a reference to the third, perhaps millennial temple that is possibly described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So why do I think this is not a physical third temple? Why do I say this is the people of God? Well, for these reasons. One, there's a correlation between Revelation 7 and Revelation 10 and 11. They are both interludes between judgments, and they both are given to comfort God's people and reassure God's people that they will be saved at the end of days, that God has counted on them, made a place for them, and secured them in his presence. And two, I'm convinced that there's symbolism in Revelation 11 that can't be taken literally. We're told that it's symbolic. We're told that things represent other things in Revelation 11. And so with Lad, I say if, if there's symbolism here in other places within the same chapter, then it doesn't rule out that these, these references to the temple could be symbolic as well. So I'm given to believe that this is better in keep better seen in keeping with the thrust of the New Testament about the temple, that it is a reference to the people of God. I don't go down the road that George Eldon Ladd goes down saying this is particularly the remnant of the Jews grafted back in. Ladd says that because he sees a reference to the temple as symbolic of the Jews particularly, and he does that on the basis of what we read about in Zechariah chapter 2. But I think because we have such consistency throughout the New Testament of Christian people, the church, being referred to as the temple of God, there's no reason to say this is just the Jews. It is, in fact, the whole people of God. There's a helpful word here from Tom Schreiner, who I don't always agree with, but I do here. Schreiner says that when we consider the apocalyptic genre of the Revelation and the symbolism pervading the book, a literal reading is unlikely. And thus John is not thinking about of the rebuilding of a literal temple or altar. Instead, all three descriptions refer to the people of God, 
so that the temple and the altar refer to those who worship God. Believers are called a temple because they are the dwelling place of God, and he references the passages that I've referenced. And indeed, in Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5, the whole universe is portrayed as God's dwelling place. The worshipers are individuals of God's people. They are God's temple. They are also designated in terms of the altar, for their lives are devoted to and surrendered to God. So understanding this temple in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, as the people of God, then let's begin to think about what's signified here. John is given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. This rod would have been something like a bamboo stick, maybe 20 feet high, like those that are found along the banks of the Nile River. What John is measuring here is what will be protected. In the background is the prophecy of Zechariah 2, verses 1 and 2, where the prophet saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. That man was going to measure Jerusalem. It was a sign that God was going to protect the holy city as his dwelling place. That not only would God send back into the holy city of Jerusalem his people who have been scattered in exile among the nations, but God also promises in Zechariah 2 and verse 5 to fill the holy city with his own presence. That his glory, his manifest presence would dwell in that place. Like the measuring of Jerusalem, the measuring of the temple by John is symbolic of God's protection and provision. God is protecting his people among whom he dwells now and will continue to dwell in the future. Just as the sealing of the tribes of Israel and the washing of the unnumbered multitudes of the nations signaled God's protection of his people, so does the measuring of the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Robert Mounts writes, Whatever the imagery may have intended, if it originally belonged to some other Jewish apocalypse, there is little doubt that for John it means that God will give spiritual sanctuary to the faithful believers against the demonic assault of the Antichrist. The protection of believers, symbolized by the measuring of the temple, was not security against physical suffering and death, but against spiritual danger. It corresponds to the sealing of chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, which did not protect the tribes of Israel from physical death, but ensured entrance into the heavenly kingdom. John is told to measure the court outside the temple because it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The outer court of the temple in Jerusalem was called the court of the nations or the court of the Gentiles. You may remember that in Solomon's temple there were only two divisions, uh, two courts, but for the temple of Herod's day, the temple that was there during Jesus' day, the temple destroyed in the year 70 AD, there were four layers to the court system. Uh, there was the outside of the holy place, there was the court of Israel, so that's where uh, men who were not priests were permitted to go. And, and then there was the court of Jewish women. And then there was the court of the Gentiles, of the nations. So the holy place, the court of Israel, the court of the women, and the court of the Gentiles. 
And between the court of the Gentiles and the court of Jewish women, there were barriers in Jesus' day. And on those barriers, there were instructions, warnings, that those who passed would experience death. While there are various ways to understand the separation between what is measured and what is not in chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, the most consistent application of this seems to be between the temporal, earthly, physical destruction that may and will come upon the people of God in the last days and the eternal, heavenly, spiritual protection that rests upon the people of God for all time by God's own will and power. So a question is quickly to be asked, and that is what does John mean by these 42 months? And one doesn't have to read much further into the Revelation to see examples of time counted in a similar way, 42 months or time, times, and half a time or 1,260 days. What are these things symbolic of? What do they have reference to? Are they to be taken literal or do they mean, do they mean something else in their significance? In the background here, of course, are the visions of Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 12 and even references to Daniel chapter 8. So rather than diving in and trying to make sense of such difficult things, I want to read a summary that I found helpful. Robert Mounts writes, In John's imagery, the holy city is yet another designation for the church. The faithful are to be trampled underfoot by paganism for a period of 42 months. The background for this is the prophecy concerning Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. There the sanctuary is to be trampled underfoot by the little horn for 2,300 days. Then it is to be reconsecrated. Likewise, the church is to be oppressed and profaned by the beast out of the abyss, Revelation 11 and verse 7, but it will not be destroyed. To what extent its victory will be triumphed through death or continued existence on earth is not clear. But in either case, the promise of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that the powers of hell shall not overthrow the church is carried through. The temporal designation of 42 months here at verse 2 and in chapter 13 and verse 5 is also given in Revelation as 1,260 days and as a time, times, and half a time. Its primary reference is to the period of Jewish suffering under the Syrian despot Antiochus Epiphanes in the years 167 to 164 BC. It became a standard symbol for that limited period of time during which evil would be allowed free reign. It is, quote, the conventional period of, in apocalyptic literature of the temporary triumph of evil before the end of the age. In Luke 21, verse 24, it is called the times of the Gentiles. And then here is a most helpful sentence. Mount says, The repeated use of the various designations in Revelation and the context in which they appear, he's talking about three and a half years, 42 months, time, times and half a time, or 1,260 days. All of these designations and their context serve to point out that the periods of final witness, divine protection, and pagan antagonism 
are simultaneous. Now, if that's clear as mud, it's okay. Here's what Mounts is saying. That by the time of John's writing, the genre, the type of writing that we're talking about here is common. There are all sorts of other books and writings that are written in the type of the Revelation, the Apocalypse. John's not the only one writing in this method, but his revelation, his apocalyptic writing, is inspired of the Holy Spirit. And it's canonical. It's taken into account as Scripture itself. But it has many of the same themes and symbols and customs that we would find in other apocalyptic writing. 200 years before the ministry of the Lord Jesus, there was this Syrian despot, Antiochus Epiphanes, who brought terror upon the Jewish people for three and a half years. And by the time of John's writing, 200 years after that, Antiochus Epiphanes and his three and a half years of terror have become a symbol in this type of writing for a short but intense period of destruction. So when John uses the imagery of 42 months, or time times and half a time, or 1260 days, because he's writing in a genre where this has come to symbolize intense but short-lived persecution, that's the primary way that we should understand this. So what does John mean when he says in chapter 11 and verse 2, do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, here's what I think it means. That the temple and the altar and the worshipers and the holy city are all ways of talking about God's people, his whole people, the church, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles saved by grace through faith. And that by measuring the temple, the altar, and the worshipers, John is saying that those who are a part of God's people by faith have no need of worrying whether or not they will have a place in God's presence forever because that place has been secured. It's been fixed. It's been, as he talked about in chapter 7, sealed. It's permanent. But by saying don't measure the outer court, for it's given to the nations, the Gentiles, and they'll trample it, John is reminding God's people you are going to go through difficult things. There are hard days ahead for you. And on this life, before the final coming of the Lord Jesus, before his destruction of all of his foes and enemies, before he vindicates you forever, and before he dwells with you as, his, as your God and you with him as his people forever, there are hardships to endure. The nations will antagonize you. That's the word. They will... They will come against you. They will provoke you. They will trample you. It may be a symbol of death. It may also be a symbol of torment and persecution. 
One of the questions that we have to ask when John says 42 months, and we take this as a symbol of a short, intense period of persecution, does that mean just at the end of days? Does it mean just right before Jesus comes? I think one of the things that's helpful for us to remember as we go through this whole book is that we live in the last days, but all of God's people, the church, have lived in the last days. From the time of Jesus' death and crucifixion, from the time of his glorious resurrection, the end of days has been upon us. And we have been living with tension because we've had a deposit, a foretaste of glory divine in Jesus' first coming. But we haven't experienced it in its fullness that we will at at his final coming. And so what's happening in this period between Jesus' first coming and his final coming is that the enemies of Christ, Satan and all of his, and all of his, his powers, those who are aligned with the devil, they know that their days are numbered. They know that they're a defeated foe. They know that a battle is coming and one day they will be destroyed forever. And yet they are, they're not fully destroyed yet. And they still have power to work. And they are, like a, they, they are like a snake that has been rolled over but can still continue to sting until it's finally destroyed. They're lashing out. One more blow. One more stick. One more bite. One more trampling of God's people. And so all throughout these 2,000 years of the end of days, the enemy of God has been experiencing the vestiges, the last bit of his power. And as time gets closer to the end, the darkness, the evil, the striking out of the evil one will only intensify. I think there will be a time toward the end of days when these things get intense. And the hardship and trampling and persecution that God's people face will become more and more pressing and pointed. But it will not always endure. It will not last forever. It will come to its end because one day Jesus will come. Because of that, God wants to comfort his people. He wants you and he wants me and he wants the church all over the world to know that while there are difficult days to be faced, ultimately God has the last word. He has measured his people. He has secured his saints. His people will persevere. And though we may lose our lives, we will not lose our souls. They will be preserved as God's people. And God will dwell with us forever as our God. Father, I pray as we've tried to think through this book, I pray that you would settle these things in our hearts and that, Lord, the promise of Revelation chapter 1 would come to bear upon us that those who read the words of this book would be blessed. And so would those who put them into practice. God, I know that all across the world there are 
Christian and Jewish people who are looking to the establishment of a third temple. And even within the holy city of Jerusalem, there are preparations being made for the day when perhaps the Dome of the Rock will be destroyed. And again, on that holy temple mount, there might be established the worship of God. Whatever else we may understand about these things, we are absolutely certain that the temple system, based in the sacrifice of bulls and goats, cannot save. That the only hope in life and in death for the nations and for us is the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So may we take heart, understanding that we are the people of God, your temple, your dwelling place. We are that now, individually and corporately, and we will be that forever until that day that you yourself are our temple and we forever dwell in your presence to give worship to your name. May we have security and confidence and trust, knowing that by faith our lives have been hidden with God in Christ on high. May we not despair as the nations rage and kingdoms totter, as the Gentiles, the nations trample against the covenant people of God. May we not despair, for even if we lose our lives, because we belong to Jesus, because we're sealed and counted and measured, we will not lose our souls. Give us comfort, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.